This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles. We win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Wait, wait for George to have a little little drink. Yeah. New trim, new mentality. <laughs> Honestly, going to the barbers is the most excited I've been about anything for so long. Like it was, <laughs> it was great. It, I said they they took an hour. It was that much hair. It took an hour. <laughs> Welcome back to the Love Tennis podcast, where all we talk about is shoes, ships, haircuts, sealing wax, cabbages, and curios. Uh, more of that nonsense poem later, but not before we look at, well, all manner of things this week. Uh, the best form of Cam Norrie's life. Uh, a first ever meeting, as far as I can tell, between two reigning French Open champions, sort of, uh, but not the ones we wanted anyway. Uh, the return of little Nicky and the coming of age of a far less grumpy teenager over in Spain. Uh, let's start, though, with one of our own. He's no grumpy and he's no teenager. Uh, Cam Norrie reached the final in Estoril in Portugal behind closed doors, of course. Uh, probably should have, I think we would agree, won his first title. Uh, but it was a good run, nevertheless. He beat Marin Cilic, Christian Garijal, Souza, a lot of decent um, clay court players there. George, this is a, a pretty big run in 2021 for Cam Norrie, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th- I think there's a pretty good stat out there that he's now, sort of, you know, up something about 19. I've lost the stat now. 18 9 um, mm. to bring his own career. So that's 18 9 in 2021 to bring himself 69 69 in his whole career. Nice. Um, which is, <laughs> but you know, I think that just goes to show what good form he's in. You know, he's probably never started a season anywhere near those sort of numbers. Um, you know, it's not easy for a lot of these guys to to get to that stage in their career where they start winning more matches when they lose and to have twice as many wins as losses is pretty good. Um, obviously, he had to pull out of Madrid with blisters, didn't he? But you know, it's a, it a good run, and I felt he should have got over the line really. Um, you know, we, we've had a bit of a joke last few weeks about clay court specialists and who are they. And he did play one, I would say, in the final. 
um, or at least one who's just not very good on other surfaces. Spain's, um, this is Spain's Albert Ramos Vignola. Uh, he, 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 I mean, he was a set-up, of course. Like he, he won the first set and yeah. looked, looked in control, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, felt like he had a good grip on the match. And, you know, he's lost in a third set tie break, but he felt like he was he was the guy to beat. Um, but, you know, there's no typically no great shame in that defeat. And obviously a run to the final is pretty good. And he had some good wins in the week against Chilich, um, for example. So, you know, there's, there's a lot, lot to take from it from for Cam's perspective. And he, he was someone who last year, I think, Okay, he got the furthest out of any Brit in a Grand Slam. I think he was the only one to reach the third round. Um, but, you know, he, he still didn't really feel like he was kicking on to me massively. Um, now he's get closing in back on his career high ranking. I think he's about seven places off that. Feels in a good kind of upward swing of momentum. Um, and, it, you know, as we always harp on about, it just takes a bit of belief. Could this be his carrot sev year? Is this where it's going to happen? Probably not. <laughs> But, uh, you know, confidence is an important thing and he's certainly got a lot of that at the minute. I think we've talked before about Cam and kind of, you know, said where's his ceiling and we, we think it's kind of about where he is and that, you know, he's never going to be a, a top 20 player. But, you know, these players do, and sometimes it's the highlight of their career to go and make a Grand Slam semi-final. Um, it's, Calvin, do you think that Cam and Clay Court in particular, that he finds himself in form in a Clay season... Is clay the surface where he could, if a draw opens up, if things fall his way, get to the last eight or the last four of a slam at Roland Garros? Um, I think hardcourt would still be his favourite surface, but he can certainly play on the clay. It suits him. He's got spinny shots, got a big spinny forehand. He moves mm. great. His game is based on his, him being consistent. Um, but... Yeah, you know, I think he's, he's probably an all-court player, to be honest. Like, on the grass, even, he's got a decent lefty serve, so that'll cause some players, players' problems. His backhand's a bit punchy. So, um, I wouldn't say there's any particular surface that you would think he's most likely to do well on, but I'd say hard-court is probably his preference still. Is there any reason, do you think, he, he's made this, this step forward in 2021? Is there anything you've put your finger on? Or, or is it just one of those upswings that happens when you're in this this area of the rankings? I think so, yeah. You know, and I think he's always going to be capable of having a couple of decent tournaments a year. You know, maybe more than a couple of decent tournaments a year. He's, he, he makes a lot of balls. He's competitive. He makes a lot of balls, and he's got a pretty decent serve. So mm. those things combined will always result in. That's why I don't. As we spoke, where his ceiling is, I think his his bottom level is. I, I can't see him dropping out of the top ninety in the top eighty or ninety in the world for some time because of those reasons. Decent serve mm. makes a lot of balls, moves well. And then typically, I'd say he's got a pretty good head on his shoulders as well. I mean, like, I yeah. think he does work pretty hard. Um, does seem to put the hours in, and you know, there's been the old result last year where it's been the old physical or mental moment. But by and large, he's someone who does does dig in and go for it quite a lot. Um, which, you know, for some of the other players who are kicking around that ranking, who are perhaps more technically proficient, I would say, than Cam, or got bigger weapons. Um, they, they probably lack a little in the mental department comparatively. Um, you know, I think if he can continue the consistency of play to go with that kind of gritty mentality, he's got a good chance of climbing up. And yeah, long, long may it continue because, you know, it, I get a feeling that a lot of the British guys are bringing themselves up at the minute. They're probably quite inspired by Dan at the top, you know, whether they say that or not. You know, seeing Dan, who was someone 
you know, not making the most of his career, getting quite late up the rankings into the the higher echelons, and suddenly Dan's playing like a top twenty player. You know, he's perhaps even nearly top ten in terms of the race. Um, I think that that should be inspiring to someone like Cam because Dan's got limitations to his game as well, main, namely his height and lack of serve. And Cam should look at Dan and think, okay, I've got potentially as big weapons as this guy. If I keep working, it may come a little bit later. Dan's 30 now. I've got years to get there. So I think there's a lot to be positive for. I think it must be interesting having someone like, like Evo around, you know, I mean, Calvin, you're, you're talking to us tonight from, from the NTC and, and that's obviously a really important part of British tennis. And it, it's somewhere that, you know, the top players and the, and I think anyone out inside the top 25 in the country basically rub shoulders, although kind of metaphorically rather than physically at the moment, obviously. And I think it is really important, as you mentioned, George, to have someone like Dan who, you know, wasn't always the best professional in the world. We know that. I think he'd be pretty open about that, who has now found a way to late bloom. And, you know, there aren't many. When you actually think about, you know, if you look at the top 20, if you think about guys there who we would consider as late bloomers, I, I'm not convinced there's really anyone there who you would say, you know, wasn't someone we would ever think of as a top 20 player at the age of 22 or 23 and now is. Maybe Pablo Carreño Booster, who finds himself at 12 in the world, but, you know, yeah, Diego yeah. Schwartz, I suppose. Yeah. I'd, say, I'd say that, interestingly, the three I would say are closest to that are the grinders, who perhaps don't have the big weapons. You know, Schwartzman, yeah. Batista Agu, and Carreño Booster are probably the three who've, because they lack that natural weapon, or weapons, um, it's taken a while. And again, that's something Cam can look at, because... You know, Cam, while I'm not saying he's is necessarily wanting to play like those guys necessarily, he he is someone who I don't watch his get matches often and think, wow, Cam's going to blow someone off the court today. He is attritional. He can get around. He's got a, you know, pretty reliable weapons to keep himself in a point and keep himself alive. Um, and perhaps for that style of player, it just takes that little bit longer. So, yeah, I think there's mm-hmm. plenty of encouragement. And who knows? Who knows? I mean... I, I, <laughs> I, I still, I, I still would say if he if he ends up in the top thirty in his career, he, he's made the best of what he has. Um, yeah. Any yeah. higher is a real bonus, but we'll see. Calvin, if you were just briefly, if you were pitching for for a job on Cam Norrie's uh, in Cam Norrie's box in the next six months, are there particular areas you can look at and you think a difference can be made? You know, I, I think we've talked about before how one doesn't accumulate weapons at this stage in your career, but are there things you think he can improve that might give him a chance, you know, of making those deep runs more often? Um, I would say the only thing that, the, probably the, the thing that he he would most like to improve is to be able to flatten out his forehand a little bit more. It, mm. It's quite tricky because it's quite sort of, it, it's a high spinny one that causes yeah. some players a bit of bit of frustration, but I'm not sure he can flatten it out so much and hit through the ball, hit through the court when he wants to. So I would say that's the area that, if you could say he wakes up tomorrow, if you gave him the option of he wakes up tomorrow and something is miraculously better, then that would be what he would hope for, I would think. Uh, I would agree with that and kind of say that one of Cam's bigger problems is actually when he plays against players who are kind of like himself, but a bit better as well. He does kind of really Mm. struggle to hit through them and take people off the court. And, you know, there's 
kind of thing in very basic level pay, tennis about kind of generating pace yourself. And I, I do feel he can kind of struggle a little bit with that as well. You know, if others aren't giving him the pace to work with, it, it, he can struggle to really kind of manoeuvre and hit people off the court. Um, so that that perhaps comes with what Calvin's saying about that forehand just needing a bit bit flatter to it, you know, a bit more kind of punch, I suppose, um, in that department. So, yeah, I, I'd kind of agree with that. And I guess if you look at the matches he won in in Portugal, for example, generally guys who do put a bit more pace on the ball, you know, Marin Cilic, for example, is someone who does hit the ball pretty hard. And I think that was the only straight sets match he won all week, apart from Jao Souza, maybe. So I think that that probably helped him. And, you know, Ramos Vignolas is someone who, who can old man you a bit. And I, I think that's probably, to a certain extent, what happened. Although, as you say, George, it was an incredibly tight final. Um, and obviously the, the Spaniard got over the line. Uh, and Cam, obviously not playing in Madrid this week, uh, struggling with blisters. I'm not surprised. He played a heck of a lot of tennis in Portugal, as I say. Went to three sets three times in a row. Uh, which you wouldn't want to do in any circumstances, but particularly uh, on clay. So we wish him well. Hope to see him back in action before uh, the French Open uh, at the end of the month. But um, whether we will or not remains to be seen. Uh, we are, of course, already underway uh, in Miami, um, Miami, Madrid, sorry, um, where the uh, the Spanish clay is hosting, well, a pretty packed draw, let's be honest. Almost all the big names in on both the men's and the women's game uh, are there. Unfortunately, the biggest game in the men's game is not there. Novak Djokovic pulled out, which I think, George, we probably weren't that surprised by, given what he said after he lost to Carrot 7 in Belgrade. Yeah, I think he Madrid's probably been a victim of the change of schedule a little bit. Um, Novak's probably thinking where he wants to get those breaks in. And, you know, he's obviously defending a lot of points in Rome so he, that's a less attractive one to skip and he clearly wants mm. to uh, play a bit more in Belgrade so it, it, it's not that great a surprise and you know we spoke but a bit a about Novak it, it, it's a blow to the tournament for sure and it, uh, but I just mean in terms of his career now where he's being so upfront about what he wants from majors I, I don't see him playing too many tournaments where he doesn't think this is directly beneficial to me. And that, that extra week gap between Madrid and the French Open probably means he kind of thinks, oh, this, this, and as I've said before, the conditions of Madrid are nothing like Paris. Um, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm not sure he really gets much from playing there, um, even though it's a place he's obviously done pretty well at in the past. So, yeah, it'll be interesting. You know, he's, he's we've mentioned last week again, not necessarily looking totally right to me at the minute. Um, so maybe a little week off will help on that front. Do you think, just kind of without getting too tangential, Calvin, but, you know, Madrid is, it's always been quite a different clay court tournament, right? It's always been quicker and the ball goes quicker, a bit more altitude in Madrid, I think. Do you think it's the kind of tournament where they might start to think, and I know we hate, we would hate them to do it, they might start to think, well, if people are going to not come because the courts are different here, we'll have to make our courts like everyone else's. I don't think you can make them like everyone else's. It's the altitude that's the problem, I think. I don't think you can replace that. I find it a strange event. If it was, I don't really know how they can solve it. I think it's going to become more of a problem. It's like George says, it's a completely different atmosphere. It's a completely different environment to what they're preparing for a couple of weeks later. I must say, it's a fabulous place to play, Madrid. Um, for me personally, I I loved it. Like, and, and, really and where, what round did you get to, George? Just out of interest. Well, I played on the, played out on the qualifying courts, James, but. 
not in the tournament, in the, in, in the media tournament. I got taken out by some right. grinding Spaniard in the end, I think in the quarterfinals, having That's snuck right through the group man. stages as Britain's sole representative. I think it was a, really? a solid effort, so solid run to the quarters. Who's, who's, apart from you, who's the best tennis player in the press pack? Um... That's a good question. I'm not 100 percent sure. To be honest. I wouldn't say I've played with all of them. Um, I play with Simon Briggs quite regularly. Um, mm-hmm. He's a bit of a late by the tennis, isn't he? Is he not yeah, he yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's done pretty well. And... I, I have I have to tell you a story about Simon Briggs that <laughs> that he doesn't know. I went to text him about it the other day, but he was severely overrated. I think uh, recently on a podcast. So on Dan Kiernan's, um Control the Controllables podcast that he does with Soto. He recently interviewed Lewis Burton, mm. who um, used to be a tennis player, but um, many other people know him for a different reason. Um, <laughs> but um, and he was talking about his his journey through the the juniors in tennis, and he said when he first came through, uh, he knew he was going to be quite decent uh, because he beat a player. He, he, in the in the Kent under 12s tournament, he beat Simon Briggs in the final, and then Dan Keenan, who's a mate, goes, is that Simon Briggs, the journalist? And Lewis Burton goes, I don't know, is he? Maybe. And then Dan goes, Yeah, I think he is. And of course, I, I know it's not because I know Simon is quite a bit older than Lewis Burton. He's, Simon but, Briggs is at least 15 years yeah. old. But, but these guys have got Simon Briggs down as like former. The dominant force in Ken's, Kent's 12 and under tennis circuit about 14 years after he was 12. So, um, I think I'm right yeah. saying as well that Simon Briggs, who is an excellent journalist, we should we should stress, um, and is welcome on this podcast anytime he's not too busy to do it. Uh, I think he's, he's one of the guys who basically didn't really play tennis growing up and effectively started writing and learning to play because he got like thrown onto the beat, which which does happen to a fair few of us, I suppose. He's um he's been getting a bit cross with me recently, um, which I'm sure he won't mind me saying because uh, I've cancelled about four mixed doubles matches with him over the last twelve months with various injury problems. So um, I'll, I'll perhaps I'm hoping to overcome this latest wrist injury and uh, be back to you, Simon. So fingers we crossed. Look, we look forward to live updates from the the Belshaw versus Briggs mixed doubles matches. I assume you're playing on opposite teams. I don't know how mixed doubles works these days. Um, let's move swiftly on before I get myself in trouble with the woke army. Uh, the uh, two reigning French Open champions who clashed in Madrid this week I mentioned earlier are, of course, Ash Barty and Iga Swiatek Barty, who won it in 2019 and didn't defend. Uh, she chose to stay in Australia. Swiatek, who won the uh, autumn edition of the French Open. George, I know you were watching this with some interest. Two players you, you really like on the clay. Barty, of course... Um, came through in straight sets, but it, it was kind of tighter than that, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a really good tight match. Um, one of those where actually I think you can tell from the reaction after, like how highly they both kind of regarded each other. Um, mm. You know, Barty was kind of like, you know, this is going to be a match I have for the next 10 years on very big stages. Um, you know, I, I think there was a serious amount of respect. And as we said about both of them before, they're both pretty good problem solvers. They both have a lot of different weapons all the way through and Barty probably a little bit more experienced a uh, little bit perhaps more uh, yeah well know-how on the tour 
might have just seen her through that one. But I thought Sviantek was playing some great stuff in the week as well. Um, leading up to that match, certainly gave Barty a go. And I wouldn't be surprised to see that scoreline flipped if they met the French Open. I think there's really not much between these two. And they're, they're probably in my top, certainly top five, possibly two of my top three favourites oh. for oh, the wow. French Open. In your top five, the two of the best clay court players, the last two winners of the French Open <laughs> in your top five. That, I mean, that's... Well, I, I, well, I, heard that George, I heard that George also might be picking one of Nadal and Djokovic for the men's. <laughs> Rumor well, has it, he has Djokovic yeah. and Nadal in his top two, top ten. For the well, two of the top five. Two of the top five, yeah. for sure. Two of the top five. I'd be willing to put Dominic Team in that category as well, guys. Oh, <laughs> oh, we'll, we'll come on to that. We'll come on to that. I did want to talk about um, the women's game briefly. Uh, Calvin, you, of course, will put um, Barty and Svantec in your top top ten contenders. Uh, for the French Open. Uh, we've also uh, kind of shaped up to talk about Naomi Osaka, uh, who seems quite happy at the moment, um, despite, as usual, showing, well, I say as usual, as we've come to expect, that she's not all that on clay. She lost to uh, Carolina Mukova uh, this week, as I'm told you're supposed to correctly pronounce it, um, who, to be fair, is having a career year of her own, but nevertheless, a player Osaka would expect to beat on any other surface. Um Calvin, are we, we're still putting Osaka in this waiting for her to improve on clay, are we? Yeah, and like you say, she tends to dip in and out of these sort of times when she's zoned in on tennis uh, and when she isn't quite. And she's throwing a few weird tweets out, isn't she, recently? So, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I don't tend to understand like... her level of Twitter anyway. No, no, me neither, but that's the thing. Not like, you know, not like this girl's in trouble sort of level of weird tweets, just sort of you know, happy, strange, I suppose they call them millennials tweeting. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that, if I didn't, that's probably the oldest thing I've ever said. But uh, <laughs> High bar. That's a high, yeah, th- high bar. But again, you know, I don't know if she's now at that stage. I think she's at that stage now where she's zoned into just the slams. And, yeah. you know, if she does well at any of the others, then fair enough. But, you know, what, what is she in the last... Is she, she won the last two slams, Osaka. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. no, because the French Open's in between. She's put one oh, of the last two course, she's yeah. played. Yeah. yeah. One of the last two she's yes. played. Yeah. Yeah. So I she's mean, I suppose like, you know, with the way the women's game is now, and and the way we expect it to be for the next five years, um, maybe that that's going to be the key for these, you know, for these women is that actually they're not able to kind of just stroll around the world and and win quite a lot of titles quite easily because there's not much depth. Because there is so much depth, they might end up playing more stripped back schedules play less competitive tennis and, you know, like, like athletes really, like, um, you know, 400 meter runners or, or javelin throwers, just try and peak for the big events, try and, try and think about the game a little bit more cyclically, which I know a lot of them do anyway. Well, I, th- I think the tennis schedule has to have a look at itself as well on top of it, especially the women's, but the men's as well. Like this, this nonsense of having like three events at the same week in Europe. Like, who can keep a track on that? You know, I think, I don't know whether it's you, James, or one of your colleagues, one of your journalistic colleagues says, you imagine that Formula One having three, three Formula One races at the same time in, in Europe. Like, if you're not in, if you're not really into tennis, you'd have no idea what's going on. There's no, yeah. there's no other sport that does this kind of thing. It, 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 I mean, it is a deep frustration. You know, I, I'm lucky enough to kind of cover cross purposes and, and work on a few different 
sports and and yeah looking from the outside in it's completely insane you know i know the masters events they've tried to make that the kind of you know flagship series which people can follow but i don't i don't think people know that that's necessarily happening either i don't think they really engage with that george i suppose the the issue is at the kind of lower levels is that you have to be providing enough you know, space for these players to play and the, the big events require big venues and a lot of money to kind of put these events on. So, you know, yeah, the Masters weeks, you don't have anything running concurrently uh, on tour level. So that's kind of, those are the events that everyone is meant to be playing who's big and known. It's just, but the lower ones, you know, it's so hard to, you're not going to make any money. So you don't, you don't build like 15,000 stadiums, put it on. I or whatever. Or have so the site. Much... I guess it's more for me. It's the, when the tournaments are in the same in the same place in the same continent. Like you know, have two tours like in like doing golf. You know, have yeah. something going on in America or South America, and something else going on in in Europe. If if that's how you want to work it, and then come together for the slams. But last week, yeah, in, that... like what did we have last week? Estoril. No, it's the week before, wasn't it? When you had Belgrade, Munich, um, Belgrade, well, Munich, and Munich and Estoril clash. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, it, it's mad. It's mad to have it that way. And, and actually, the golf point is a good one because, yeah, as you say, those tours do kind of separate out and it stops all the insane flights where you've got guys flying from one side of the world to the other side of the world and, you know, it cuts down on that travel. I guess the one sport that I often think of to compare tennis with is snooker because, obviously, it's it's individual, it's a tour sport, it goes around the world, has lots of different time zones involved. And the way they kind of solved it with snooker was to expand the draws so the ranking event yeah. now one two eight. Everyone's in from the first round. Now I appreciate that with a more physical sport like tennis, you couldn't necessarily make that work. But surely expanding the main draws in those tournaments would make a lot of sense. You know, beyond whatever they are at the moment, forty eight or thirty two. I think again, yeah. it just comes down to the size of the venue and the amount of courts that you can have to get through those things. Like um, Monte Carlo is a good example. Like that's the tournament people are always like why is there not a women's event there well the simple logistic reason is that there's not enough courts and spaces to get there's barely enough to get through a masters event you know they're right at the bottom of the rung in terms of how many players they have um in the draw for it to qualify for a masters um so you know how many venues are there in the world that are ready built for 128 draw tennis i mean not many, really. Um, you know, it, it, it is difficult. And we spoke about this last week when we were talking about the Masters 1000 event coming to Queen's, potentially. You know, it's it's something we would like to happen, but it logistically is very, very difficult given the venues we've got. Um, so I think I think that's kind of the bigger issue. I do have a bit of sympathy there. The, the, the two tours thing's interesting. Again, I think the issue then comes... You know how how do you have two tours outside of Europe when you want to build up to the French Open in Europe, Wimbledon? I mean, it's impossible, isn't it? Really. Yeah. Um, you know, so you know, there there are kind of difficult problems. What I would say though, before people start accusing me of being some great defender of the calendar, which you well know I'm not, but the, the <laughs> thing that really, uh, to quote Peter Griffin, grinds Grind my gears, is the finals not being staggered over a weekend. That is world class stupidity. Um, I don't know, you know, none of these events are Wimbledon where they 
can semi have the right to be like, we're never moving our final because it's tradition. You're all small events and you're cancelling each other out and making it hard to follow. Um, stop it. Like, really start staggering those out and stop being stupid. Yeah, and just just while we're on it, on the, on the women's game, I, I don't know whether people have seen but this has gone a bit under the radar, but again, the women, the WTA's ability to shoot themselves in the foot by taking their results off Google today. It's not they've just Google come back. They've just it. come back today, actually. I think. Yeah. All right. So they, they, they've, they've gone in. They've this just is what they come keep back. Doing that. Yeah. But but I understand that was a purposeful move early on, which I, so, I said. To sorry, them. just just to kind of fill in the the uninitiated here. Um, usually, uh, tennis results appear on what's called a Google widget, where basically you you Google a tennis player's name and and you get that quite attractive box that comes up and it pulls up the scores and. And that data is kind of fed through to Google. You're saying the WTA, who've just launched their own scoring app, I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Um, and in doing that, they also pulled the scores off the Google widget. Is that right? That That is what happened. But it seems they've come to their senses today. I, I gave them a bit of a, a rollicking about that. Well, I say them. Someone within it, a couple of, a bit of kind of a... I let my fans know quite strongly that that was incredibly stupid. Um you're not going to just drive people to your app doing that. You're just going to drive them away. It's very dumb. Um, so anyway, it seems that it changed today because I was working on an interview with Sviontek. So I was just, I Googled her and saw her name. And heck, heck, come of up. A crowbar, heck of a crowbar, that George, into a plug. Very impressive. Bring us right back onto schedule. Um, I know that your interview doesn't come out until next week, so you don't want to say too much and um, let the cat out of the Sviontek bag, so to speak. But uh, maybe in general terms, tell us a bit about what it was like to spend a bit of time talking to her and uh, get to know her a bit. She is an interesting character. Um, I think she does things a bit differently. She's got, got quite open about like the mental side of her game and how, you know, uh, we probably all know she works with a uh, sports psychologist. Uh, she's been doing that for two years and it travels around with her. Um, really interesting. I mean, you can wait for the piece. Don't feel the need to read about it right now. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, I, 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 yeah, I enjoyed it. And I, I, I kind of, it, uh, the stuff I found most interesting from a tennis side of things was about how kind of prior to the French Open, she'd been almost having this complete meltdown about how like her practice sessions were never translating into, um, kind of matches and how you know she just found it so frustrating that every time she was going on to court she was like why am I not just beating everyone I know I'm playing really well I know I'm really good at tennis what's going on and she lost to like a Ransom Roos uh, in her only clay court match before the French Open yeah. um, and then obviously came out blitzed everyone on the way um, I think the worst games against her in a in a match was the final, which was five games. That's the most anyone took off her. Six of her 14 sets finished in a breadstick. Um, so, you know, she was unbelievable and just seemed so calm doing it. Um, and she, she basically was just saying, I just didn't care. That's how I did it. Like, I just taught myself not to care. Um, mm -hmm. But now she's saying it's very hard to replicate that when you've suddenly got the expectation of being a Grand Slam champion. So it's all right doing that at 54 in the world, but can you replicate it? So that's it. that'll be an interesting challenge for her going forward. But yeah, I, I, I did enjoy speaking to her. It kind of it resonates well with what we've spoken about a couple of times and, and what Dominic Team spoke about recently about hit, you know reaching that Grand Slam victory and then experiencing this enormous 
kind of sense of, of emptiness when you when you achieve that. And it's not uncommon, you know, it, it happens to a lot of first time winners. They they come over the line and, and they end up saying, I don't know what else I want to do. The the other really interesting thing I would say about this is that and this could be a product of like this new generation, um, is that she was kinda of like she identified the mental side of her game as something that needed working on from like 14 to 15 or something. So she's went out seeking psychologists at that stage, um, which I find quite interesting for like a young, a really young player. Maybe, maybe, sorry, maybe closer to just 15, 16, but you know, it was an acknowledgement from comments Novak had made where he was saying, you know, everyone's got good forehands. Everyone's got good backhands you've got to be mentally good enough to be a champion. And she's kind of like, well, why, why wouldn't I have a mental coach then as well as having a physical trainer and then someone who's teaching me the kind of basics of tennis. So, you know, that, that kind of attitude is quite interesting and perhaps something we'll be seeing more and more of. I know Medvedev is another one who's kind of taken that approach. Um, be interesting yeah. to see if it becomes a real trend that, you know, these guys just become part of teams and, do everything. Stefan Tsitsipas as well, of course, has got a basically a full-time mental coach, as far as I can tell. Um, Calvin, you've obviously been working with players, you know, kind of from before and, and through this kind of, I don't know, mental health revolution that, that has taken place in this part of the 21st century. Have you seen this kind of gradual further acceptance of players to work on their mental game? I mean, I guess when you started in the game, people maybe didn't talk about it anywhere near as much. Um, yeah, to a degree, I think, well, not to a degree, it's it's it's, it's a massive. Um, there's been a massive increase in it. Um, I'm still a bit unconvinced, if I'm honest. I'm still, I still don't know many players who have started working with a mental skills coach or a sports psychologist, and it has tangibly improved their performance that beyond what they were doing previous to that. Mm. There, there isn't in tennis. I don't think in sport there's loads of examples. In tennis, there's there's even fewer. I mean, if people keep coming with Kevin Anderson, I don't know the story behind that. But um, I know a lot of people who work with sports psychologists and they always tell me I've been working with a sports psychologist and on my mental side. And the next time I see them in a match, they're doing exactly the same things as they were doing previous to that. Um, but they're about two grand less in their bank account. It's gone to a sports psychologist. I think th- this is quite interesting as well from this perspective from what Sviantek was saying that she was saying a lot of players just kind of you know it's, it's not like an immersive side of things they're not dealing with a lot of stuff off the court it's just very purely on the court whereas she seems to be in this very weird full-on relationship where it's about her entire personal growth and well-being and taking on everything and but, but I just mean in terms of her having this um this uh, lady travel with her so immersively doing everything you know it seems almost like just having i don't know like a mate who goes with you who then you discuss everything but secretly she's monitoring everything you're doing and managing your stress levels seems a bit more than just i don't know having a one-off chat every every now and then but it was interesting i mean it's, it's such a strange it's a strange industry though because i remember a few years back when i sort of said the same thing as i've just said now and and one of, somebody said, to, one of these people said to me, "Oh, but that sports psychologist—they're a bit, um, they're a bit too intense." But I'm a mental skills coach, and, <laughs> and I'm, that means that means I'm more tuned in to what the players want. Then about three months after that, I was saying this to a sports psychologist, and they said, "Mental skills coach is a sports psychologist without the qualification." <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, I, I think the most important thing, if you're going to do it, and I guess it's a bit of a counter to what George said, what Sviatek had said, it, if you're going to do it, I think it needs to be as close to on-court as possible. It needs to be tangible on-court. I don't like this sort of stuff like, I've seen players taking like diaries and journals and writing their stuff down, and I find a lot of it is box ticking, but then when they're, when they're on court, the racket's still going into the fence, the, you know, and uh, it, yeah. It needs it's, to be it needs to be applicable, you know, kind of yeah, cognitively applicable. Yeah, it's an it's an open it's case like, for me. It's like any training, right? Like you can you can hire a personal trainer. If you don't go to the gym, it doesn't make a damn bit of difference. And I suppose yeah. it's the exact same thing. If you don't take the sports psychology and the mental stuff onto the court, I don't, it's not going to make a difference. I think I think the other really important thing to stress here is that with mental stuff, it's always going to be so different per person. Um, and again, she was quite keen to make that point that for her, she found out it, she found that everything that was affecting her off the court, what she would be bringing with her onto it. And that became like a big problem. And she was having all these like very emotional reactions to lots of things that were going on in her private life. But now she's kind of learned to control it or kind of learned, got a bit more perspective on it, I guess. Um, so that, you know, but she also said, I actually think there are other players who it wouldn't be that beneficial for who kind of just go to work and it's separate and, you know, it doesn't really make a difference for them. So, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's interesting. We, we've said before as well, you know, you can hire a serve coach and that doesn't help you. It's all about getting the right <laughs> fit as well and getting the right person. You know, some of the best technical coaches in the world actually are the wrong fit for someone because they don't need to change their technique. They need to just learn to work with what they're comfortable with and it's a tactical tweak. So, I think there's just a lot of nuance with it, um, but it's quite interesting anyway. I think it's mm. certainly. I think we'll see more and more of going forward. Yeah, one size fits all. Never, never good for coaching or, or for athletes. Uh, let's move on to someone who we know is one of the most mentally resilient players on the tour. It's of course Nick Kyrgios, uh, who's just perfect mentally, physically, everything. Uh, much to Calvin's <laughs> delight, he is back. He's finally going to play uh, somewhere outside of Australia. He's heading to Mallorca uh, to play on the grass. I can't imagine it was the grass courts of Mallorca that attracted him, but the uh, Spanish Islands, other sights and sounds. Uh, we imagine he'll obviously be, be up at Queen's, a tournament he's played before, uh, and Wimbledon, of course. Uh, George, I know you were keen to point out that Tony Nadal has been waxing <laughs> lyrical about a man that he has previously slagged off uh, on repeated occasions for having no education and being bad for tennis. Uh, just before you answer... Uh, my theory is that if there's anything I've learned about Tony Dahl over the last few weeks and months is that he doesn't like not being on tour anymore and that perhaps some nice words about Nick Kyrgios could earn him a place in, in Kyrgios' box. I mean, personally, <laughs> I think being in Kyrgios' box sounds about as much fun as being locked in a small room with a coked-up Lawrence Fox, but uh, some people might enjoy getting paid to be shouted at <laughs> Nick Kyrgios. I, I... I don't think there's any danger of those two linking up, but that, that would be a, a complete <laughs> clash of ethos, I think. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's... Have I you booked your yeah. flights to Mallorca yet, George? Have you got the PCR testing underway? I haven't. I, I wish I was going to Mallorca. I wish I was going anywhere at the minute, but I don't think... <laughs> I think we're marooned here for a little while longer. Um, yeah, I, it's good. It's good he's coming back because I, I think, first and foremost, I wasn't sure we'd see him again all year really um you know we, we've kind of said before if there was a time for him to come back and play it would be the grass um 
and uh, you know as much as Calvin loves him it, it brings eyes to the sport people care about this guy and him kind of playing less is almost even better in terms of it becomes something that everyone's desperate to see and is really looking forward to um, so yeah I think it's good news obviously the Tony Dazal stuff's just kind of funny but kind of classic isn't it you know someone wants to promote something <laughs> and they completely contradict the yeah yeah you know suddenly he's the biggest star outside the big three which you know is actually kind of right but goes against his mm. complete polar opposite to his previous comments about him being bad for tennis and lacking in education etc so yeah it, it's great to have him back though i think assuming he does get there and doesn't get injured or anything but yeah. Uh, Calvin, you've got a well-publicised hatred of Nick Kyrgios, so maybe we'll avoid triggering, <laughs> triggering another rant from you. Um, have you ever been to Mallorca? Is it nice? Yeah, uh, uh, on that, I didn't hear your question, but I assume you're asking me about Nick Kyrgios. Um... No, no, I wasn't. I was asking you <laughs> to, to avoid to avoid asking you about Nick Kyrgios. I was asking you about Mallorca and whether it was nice and whether the tennis would be any good. Yeah, I assume so, yeah. Lovely place. I've been... Um... I went on a stag do there a few years ago. <laughs> I, was, I didn't play much tennis. Um, That's usually uh, lost lost my lost my phone. Uh, we, I was there for two nights, and one night I'd lost my phone, so I'm literally still paying for that night out five years on because uh, um, <laughs> I had to buy a new phone and my credit card. Um, yeah, on, on curious, I'll, I'll comment on it anyway. I think this is his second tournament in five months, so. As I said, part-time tennis player. That's always been my, um, <laughs> um, it's always been my assertion. And on Tony Nadal, I agree with James there, actually. He's rivaling Boris Becker, isn't he, for um, slyly punting himself for as many jobs <laughs> on the tour without actually saying that he wants to coach anybody. Can I just ask what sort of stag do you're going on where you're not playing lots of tennis, Calvin? That seems totally out of keeping with your well, life. Well, do you want to hear a tennis stag do story? Right? Yes. So, so if it's PG. Playing, no, well, it, it's very PG, and that's the funny part of it. So when, I was, when we were growing up, uh, me and my tennis mates, when we used to play in Yorkshire, there was this one guy, I'm not going to name him, but he was a bit of a goon, right? Uh, and that's been kind. But just so many stories by how much of a goon he was. And he, anyway, long story short, he's moved to America and he was such a dweeb, like he'd report you to the umpires <laughs> if you'd sworn and stuff like that. Um, but um, <laughs> he moved to America and a couple of years ago he got married and we found out he was having a stag do, but it was a non-alcoholic stag do. No alcohol allowed on the stag do. And the oh, stag dear. do was an Ironman contest. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Oh. So, so yeah. Just to clarify, do you mean Iron Man as in you all do an Iron Man or you dress? Yeah, Iron everyone Man? on it had to do an Iron Man, and there was no alcohol allowed on the stag do at all. That's oh my God. I'm, ge- I'm guessing you didn't yeah. go and do that. I absolutely did not know. But a mate <laughs> of mine was a ma- one of my best mates was best man. He was asked to be best man. So, so How he, he had to do it. Oh my goodness! He, he, he made up some terrible excuse and just didn't go. Plantar um, <laughs> so. fasciitis is very bad. And he actually, and the worst thing, he actually lives in America as well, so it was the easiest for him to get there. Um, <laughs> I mean, so. the thing is, I, I knew when you said that, that you hadn't gone, because the thing that I know about anyone who's ever done an Ironman is it's one of the first two things they tell you about themselves <laughs> shortly after their name. <laughs> yeah. It's incredibly important that everyone knows you've done an Ironman. Same with the Tough Mudder. Have you done Tough Mudder, George? I'm fairly sure you've done one. 
I, I've not done that. I, I would like to do an Ironman, though, so probably so I can bring it up all the time. George, there's absolutely no danger that a man with your injury record is going to get through I was gonna say, the training for an Ironman. Well, I was going to say, this is the issue. So, I mean, I've done a marathon before, but my knees yeah. really... Yeah. Um, but my knees really... Did Rome when I was about 19. And as you say, I couldn't train because my knees were buggered. So I, mm. for six weeks before, I did both my IT bands and then just had to go and run it with like a, taking 11 painkillers. And for, I did it sub four. I did it sub four hours, which was enough for me to justify never doing that again. But I would love to do an Ironman if I could survive the uh, running. But I'm not sure how much. It's the training I find hard on that front. A quick reference to the Mallorca stag do that I did go on. Um, <laughs> one of the nights there we went in, we had to do um, morph suits, so lycra morph suits. Yeah, yeah. And um, I went as the Riddler, and nice. one mm-hmm. uh, and my, one of my mates went. He didn't buy a suit, so someone else had to buy it for him, and they bought him the pink power. <laughs> so we went out. Uh, and it was a pretty big one. So we ended up, like, the night ended at about five in the morning or something. Maybe a bit late. It might be six in the morning. Um, and me and one of my mates were staying. I don't know why, but we were st- me and the lad in the Pink Power Ranger were staying at a different hotel from the other lads. So we left the club and started walking. And my mate goes, oh, it's this way. So we start walking. And it's like, we're just chatting away. And we've had a few at this stage, obviously. So, And, it gets, and, and our hotel is literally about 10 minutes walk away from where we were. And after about 50 minutes of walking, I was like, why have we not got to the hotel yet? And he's like, yeah, I, I, I don't know, but I don't think this is the right way. So long story short, we'd walked 50 minutes in the wrong direction from the hotel. And at this stage, it's getting to like about 20 past eight in the morning. And we start walking back. But where we're walking back was like a family holiday resort. So people start coming out onto the beach, like with their kids and the Riddler and the pink Power Rangers are walking <laughs> down the beach. <laughs> <laughs> All these family holiday makers. <laughs> and then, like, people are, like, looking. And I remember now that this, this one, like, middle-aged dad came out on one of the hotels onto his balcony and just, like, looked out onto the seafront, onto the beachfront, and saw us. And it's like his look just gave, like, what on earth did I take last night? <laughs> what, 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 what grade of drugs was that in last night? I've just opened up here, and the Power Rangers walking down with the beach with the Riddler. Well, um, back to Madrid, a short hop from Calvin Stagdu in Mallorca, where, to be fair, there is some actual really big tennis going on, especially for, for the Spanish audience. Uh, Carlos Alcaraz, probably already by the time you listen to this uh, podcast, will have played Rafa Nadal in Spain's capital on the country's biggest court. If you don't know who Carlos Alcaraz is, it probably means you haven't been listening to the podcast very long because I talk about him most weeks. Uh, He will turn 18 years old tomorrow and play Rafa Nadal, his hero, in the second round of the Madrid Open. He battered Adrian Manorino in the first round. He's hit with Rafa before, so he'll know him pretty well. Um, And the Spanish hype train has never been louder or bigger. They all know Rafa's years are limited, uh, probably to the next three Four, maybe, if we're lucky. And they know they need someone to take up the uh, the slack. And I think they think Carlos Alcaraz is the guy. And, and why not? He he was pretty dominant, George, against Manorino. He, I know, you know, Adrian Manorino is not going to knock over many big names. But I think it's fair to say that uh, 
that, you know, it's a good win for a teenager to go and beat a guy 6-4-6 love in the first round of Madrid, irrespective of what happens against Nadal. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think you're getting pretty high compliments from Nadal about him already <laughs> being like a special player and someone he views as uh, someone who's got a serious career on the tour. I mean, I think we all think that anyway. Um, got a lot about him. Um yeah, I'm being trained to see. I mean, as you say, I don't, I don't want to talk too much about the match because it's probably going to have been and gone and anything I say will come out looking completely ridiculous because part of me wants to say I'm kind of expecting Rafa him to be overwhelmed and Rafa just to see him off. But Rafa's not what he has been the last few years at this stage. So who knows? Who knows? But mm-hmm. I, I'm expecting a pretty comfortable win from the Dal. I hope it's less of a... Sebastian Corder US Open affair where you know playing your idol turns into something completely disastrous but yeah we'll see he seems to he doesn't strike me as someone who will go quite down that road hopefully no he's, he's coached by um, Frank Carlos Ferrero isn't he and I know he thinks I spoke to him last year about about Carlos and I know he thinks very highly of him and, and they've had a pretty you know a measured approach he, he won he beat funnily enough Albert Ramos Vignolas in, in Rio in a three-hour match, you know, at the age of... He would have just been 16 then, in February, just before the global pandemic really really shut down tennis. And I think if it were not for, for the pandemic, the timing of it, we would be talking about Carlos Alvarez in these terms 12 months ago. As it is, he's now up to 114 in the world, I think, even if he loses to Nadal, which means he'll probably get into French Open main draw, I think. It might go down to that, depending on how many people pull out. Either way, he'll be in qualifying and I think he'll be seeded in qualifying and most people would fancy him to come through based on the results that, that he's achieved so far. He, he, of course, still has a chance to pick up some points you know, over the next couple of weeks. I can't remember if they've set French Open seeding or not. Um, so he, he may yet. I'm not sure. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, but but Calvin, you know, I know you, you hated that Corda Nadal match that George mentioned where he was playing his idol, the bloke who had a dog named after growing up. If it was a cat, actually. Excuse me, George. Was it a cat? So I think I think it was a cat. Oh, Just so to be accurate, that's very <laughs> embarrassing. Um, Calvin, you were in in you know Carlos Alcaraz's corner. Apart from having to learn Spanish overnight, I mean, h- how would you approach that game? Because we know Alcaraz has got a massive forehand, but Rafa's realistically going to be going after his backhand, isn't he? Because it's his weakness. Or do you yeah, just he'll... forget all about the bloke on the other side of the net and say, "Go and have fun." I think you've got to, and it's a strange one in that regard because he's such a hero in in Spain, is Nadal, and and even more of a hero for the for the young tennis players. It will help him that he's got Ferrero in his corner because that's somebody who's who's also been a bit of a Spanish hero, so he's been around that magnitude of of player. Mm. But as you say, I mean, Nadal will probably look to give him about one forehand every twenty minutes. So <laughs> um, I I would say I can't see anything other than Nadal winning that match. Mm. Uh, well, I, I hope that it's a, it's a good one. And if you're listening before that, then do make sure uh, you, you tune in because, you know, I, I think I, it's hard to say, but with this being Carlos's 18th birthday, with him playing Nadal in Madrid, I think this might be a day that we talk about for quite a long time in the future because it's his first really big moment on the stage, on the global stage, and how he handles that pressure. And how he kind of carries himself. And, and from what, what little I know about him, I think he will handle it very well. Because I think he's a very mature 17 tomorrow to be 18-year-old. 
Um, and I think we might look back on that day and think, yeah, that was the moment a lot more people realised that Carlos Alcaraz might have what it takes to, to go and win Grand Slam. Um, let's move on. There's a couple of uh, bits we want to clear up uh, before we go. But first, we have to do Dream Doubles, of course, uh, because here in the UK, it's, uh, it's election week. Uh, we've got local uh, council, mayoral and by-elections to sort. I know George has been very busy, which is why he's so underprepared, uh, because he's high up in one of the political parties that we won't name in the interests of, uh, of neutrality. Uh, but this week's Dream Doubles is politically themed. Calvin, I'll start with you, out of generosity. Uh, <laughs> For the first time ever. <laughs> We're asking... <laughs> For you to name a doubles pairing you would vote for. Who would you vote for if tennis players were to run for office? So this, I've, I've gone, did, gone Josh. Can I just Sorry, clarify, is this, is this active players or can this be past and present? Well, I think we both know that Calvin's picked two blokes who retired 20 years ago. So um, <laughs> just, just guess it. It could be anyone, George. You can vote for anyone you want. I'll have you know that my two last week were both active players. So, yes, they were. <laughs> um, but but one of mine has retired twenty years ago today. So, <laughs> um, so I've gone for a um, sort of American themed like president and vice president. Um, Very nice. And nice. I've gone for my my president is Stefan Edberg, the most diplomatic mm. tennis player, well rounded. I don't think you're going to find any skeletons in the closet. Um, that type of thing on Stefan um, yeah I think he'd, he'd be solid presidential material wouldn't he um, yeah. and his running partner I've gone for Venus Williams um, interesting why yeah, adds, a, adds, a, adds a bit of edge uh, man on the street um, yeah. you know she'll have the, the black vote in America which is big um, yeah. I find much more a lot more likeable than her sister I yeah. think a lot more sort of, a lot more diplomatic. A lot more, more people would vote for. Her, I think she doesn't have the, she's just nicer. I think, but mm. but you know, it's it's hard as well. She's a hard ass as well. So um, mm. I think that's a good, I think that's a good ticket, as I believe they call it in America. Yeah, yeah, running partners a good way to think about it. Um, I've gone slightly slightly differently. Which first of all, you've got to back someone who people like. I think you, you kind of alluded today. You need someone likable. And I don't know anyone in the world who doesn't like Juan Martín del Potro. I mean, I would consider voting for Juan Martín del Potro in, in any election, never mind some sort of tennis-related one. If, if he wants to be Chancellor of the Exchequer, well, he, he's certainly more qualified than the current candidate. So I'm, I'm all for Juan Martín del Potro. Uh, but I think behind the scenes, and I guess a little bit like Calvin's running partner, he'd need somewhere a bit of edge a bit of political kind of now, someone who knows how the, the nitty gritty of tennis politics works without getting too carried away with the, the idea of actually winning things. And I think that the human inferiority complex that is Jamie Murray is the perfect bloke to really do the, the hard political yards and not be afraid of telling people how it is, you know, the sort of chief of staff role while Juan does the the very nice kind of glad handing and kissing of babies on the campaign trail. Uh, Juan Martín del Potro is definitely my presidential candidate ahead of my my vice president, nitty gritty Jamie Murray. Uh, and George, I think I've given you enough time to remember exactly who it is that you carefully prepared for this podcast. Uh, who have you yes. gone with? Well, I, I'm going to take a slightly different route. and I'm going to go for 
people who I, I like who think are going to campaign for serious change. So right. I'm taking someone from the past who made as much change as anyone else. It's uh, the legendary Billie Jean King. So pretty obvious yeah, choice there. But um, which I know always goes down well with good old Calvin. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm, I'm going to I'm actually going to pick uh, Coco Goff second. I thought she gave some really cool speeches last year during the Black Lives Matter stuff. Holds herself really well think she she could have a future in it um obviously the real politicians on the tour are Federer and Djokovic those guys answer every question for about 20 minutes and Classic hospital, just like let's we forget hospital, of course <laughs> how he fancies himself but the other I, I did just quickly google tennis politician to see if anyone had gone into it do you know who popped up uh, you will not know Mar- i don't know why i'm asking Mar- Mar- this Mar- or someone no he could have done okay. but i don't think he did I, I yeah. kind of know, but I can't remember. Go on, George. It's Paradorn Shishapan who ran in mm. Thailand. Mm. So I suppose for the degree of accuracy, he probably should be our answer if anyone who's tried to go for it. But, um, <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think any of our pairs, neither none of them would be Tory or Republican, would they? Would we say that they were all Democrat or Labour? If, yeah, I was going to say, if we're, if, we're, if we're Tories, you're taking Isner and... <laughs> So he's taking with Isner. Isner is Isner... for sure. <laughs> there's, there's no danger Alexander Zverev, you know, quarantine. Um, he knows, quarantine, he knows how to survive a scandal. <laughs> quarantine Matet in, um, in, in the Jacob Reese mog role, probably just being an, an annoying shit. Can, can I just can I just say this article on Paradorn Trishapan is one of the most hilarious articles I've ever read in my life. Like, just so bloody random. Like, okay, so he's planning to run for a seat in Thailand's parliament. I can't find out actually how that went. So I presume he lost quite badly or was never elected and this was just a pipe dream. Um, He joined the Chart Patanea Puea Pandin party. uh, One of whose leaders currently heads their country's Lawn Tennis Association. He said he would promote sports as a revenue earner as an alternative to drugs for youth and an instrument for national unity. So this is good. He's got good policies. I mean, this is, these uh, are the lines of support, yeah. His wife is former Miss Universe Natalie Globova. He, since leaving the circuit, he has raced motorcycles, acted in a movie, and promoted a herbal sex aid. <laughs> Is he? I told you. <laughs> is, is he actually the most interesting tennis player there is? Are we doing a whole podcast yeah, on Parador okay, and Shishapan? No, we We're doing a Guillermo Vias style special <laughs> on tennis in Thailand as a whole, with him as our keynote speaker. Uh, let's move on, George, before we get ourselves in much more trouble. Uh, I have a couple of bits of um, laundry listing to do from your notes. Uh, two retirements, uh, which we kind of wanted to note. Um, Barbara Strickova uh, has retired at the age of 35, one of the best doubles players in the world. She won Wimbledon doubles uh, in 2019. She announced that she uh, was pregnant in March. So she is sailing off into post-tennis and motherhood. And we wish her the very best, uh, of course. And there was also the retirement of Alexander Dolgopolov uh, at the age of 32. Now, probably slightly less surprising, given that he's not played a match since 2018. Um, he's had a series of wrist injuries, which I know we know all about on this podcast. I'm sure much worse than George's 
minor tweak. Uh, but I thought maybe, given that he's a he's a bloke who only made one Grand Slam quarterfinal, I wonder if anyone had a favourite Alexander Dolgopolov memory. Because in terms of people who've you know only once made it into the second week of a Slam, I think he's had a pretty significant impact on the game. Yeah, I was going to say he got a nice uh, farewell from Federer. I don't know if you saw who kind of sent him a private message um, wishing him well and saying he was someone uh, he really enjoyed watching. I mean, there's some amazing highlights. You just need to type in Dolgopolov highlights. He really was an interesting player. My, my uh, I, I don't know why I associate him with this, um, but he was one of the players, I think, for the record number of players pulling out of Wimbledon in the first round that got them to bring in that rule about splitting in half the prize money. This year they changed that. The game, George. He made lasting change to the game. Absolutely. I think on that note, we have to retire. Uh, it's long overdue. Uh, thank you, as always, for joining us, uh, for listening. Uh, he's been George Belshaw. The other guy's been Calvin Beton. I've been James Gray. If you don't already follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod, please do so. Uh, if you're listening or back on the podcast on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, please leave us a rating and a review. We're still working off that nasty open question, closed question review from three years ago. It's really holding us back. So we'd love it if you could leave us something nice and it, it makes our Monday evenings and sometimes Tuesday evenings go a little bit quicker. Other than that, please do look after yourself and stay safe as always. Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.